Welcome to Trapping Radio Podcast. This is your host, Clint Locklear. Uh, we didn't have a show last week. I wish I could tell you a really big reason, but uh, me and my wife were just busy doing some things, and I just totally forgot. That's the excuse uh, of what it is. Um, I wish I had some elaborate thing. I was going to tell you that I was in the backyard digging a bunker, hiding toilet paper, going out and robbing trucks for sanitizers, and you know preparing food and loading ammo and all this stuff for obviously the state of emergency that trump apparently just uh declared but i really wasn't building a bunker uh i have not bought any toilet paper since it started because i'm a prepper don't need to go buy toilet paper and um actually social distancing uh, me and my wife are pretty stringent on that and I don't, I'm not seeing it as too bad of a thing personally yet. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool actually. You know, if, if you're at home and you're one of these places where you've almost been mandated to be at home and everything else is closed around you, why not look at this as a, an opportunity to get closer with your family, your wife, your kids? Uh, there's nothing saying that you can't have social distances while you're going out fishing or turkey hunting. That's what season it is. Uh, find out what other things you can do. I mean, what better place to be out in the woods and not around people? Because if you're going to be in a house with your kids and your wife and your everybody else, you, you can be out on a river catching crappie right now, bringing in some catfish, doing some stuff like that. Don't treat it like a prison system. Treat it like... Uh, and I know kids, they're, they're so used to being, you know, everything's device driven. But if, if, uh, if you do a little bit of planning and thinking and, you know, not so much do this because I said so type thing, you might find out that you may actually get along with your kids a little bit better than you thought you did. And your wife too. Treat her like a queen. Uh, you, you'll be surprised how far that'll take you. Use this to your advantage. I'm kind of surprised that Trump did the national emergency because I mean I haven't looked on the phone today uh, what are we now 50 60 70 deaths in the country from from COVID-19 we had 60,000 from the regular flu state of emergency never leaves so if this virus stays around like the, the the flu that we're used to which came in 1918 the Spanish flu is so still one we got today I guess we'll have this state of emergency for the next 50, 100, 200 years. It, it is, it's starting to make no sense whatsoever um, unless there's something they're not telling us. It just doesn't make any, it's starting to get where it just doesn't make sense. So I, I don't know what to say about all that, but if you gotta be hunkered down with your family, <coughs> I promise you I don't have, well, I can't promise anything. I don't think I got COVID-19. But um, if you're hunkered down with your family, make, make something good out of it. Don't look at it as, as something that's got to be such a drudgery. I want to thank our sponsors for getting today's show. What today's show is going to be, I don't know what made me start thinking about this today, but I started thinking about Johnny Thorpe. Uh, he was a good friend of mine. Uh, I got to spend quite a bit of time with him. And uh, I don't know really what, what triggered that, but something got me thinking about Johnny, and I thought, uh, well, what a great topic to just do a show on. 
some different aspects of Johnny's personality and his trapping. I thought, uh, yeah, this is a, it's a good time just to reflect on on a really uh, an amazing trapper that was very giving to other trappers, and he was skilled, and he did it in an old school way that we really don't do anyway anymore. So that's kind of what the show is going to be about. Before we do, I want to thank our sponsors. We have the best sponsors in the industry. We have the most honest sponsors. Uh, I deal with them on a daily basis. I do business with them. I've done business before they were sponsors. Uh, if they decided not to be a sponsor, I would still do business with them because they're good companies to work with. And the first one we have is Wildlife Control Supplies. They're out of Connecticut. They have everything you need for the ADC business and they have a full line of trapping supplies. I was in the bank, a lady got a, 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 a skunk that got all over her car, apparently got on her clothes, it got in her house. She's like pouring tomato sauce and stuff all over her carpets trying to get this smell out of here. And I'm like, hey, let me give you a website, which was wildlifecontrolsupplies.com. They got sprays for that. You would have thought I handed that lady a $1,000 bill. Good people. Then we have Oki Cable and Trap. Uh, he's got a full line of trapping supplies. He's out of Oklahoma. If you want to play around making your own bait, normally he grinds up a, a bunch of meat. Uh, he's a fur buyer most years. I'm not sure about this year, but he's just one of those good guys that, that likes to wheel and deal inside the trapping industry. And if you ever meet him, you're going to like him. And uh, that, he's, just, he's just a really good guy. Then we have F&T Fur Harvesters, everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. Um, you know, they, they allow me to be on their TV show, which I'm, I'm grateful for. They, they spread a lot of the money that, that they make back through the trapping industry. But more than that, they're so honest that it's, it's amazing to deal with today. And I could just give you story after story of how I know this, but it's, it's at a different level. And if you're looking for some people to deal with, F&T is spot on. Then we have Dunlap Lures, Jeff Dunlap. He is a good friend of mine. He makes a lot of lure. A lot of the lure formulas were being perfected back in 1970 from his dad. So he's been in this industry a long time. He's a gifted trapper. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a different cat when it comes to a lot of things. He's kind of a little bit on the rebellious side but he, he tries to help trappers all he can. You, you can check him out at his Facebook page, which is Trapping Talk, the biggest Facebook page on Facebook with trapping. He does a lot of stuff on YouTube. Uh, we got some projects coming up. Uh, we're actually doing a school together in September. You can go to wolfernation.com, look at the PCG store uh, under business course and trapping school. And we have a few that are left for the first class. So if you want to do the school guys, it's, it's not going to hang around forever. I know with everything going on, you don't, it's hard to think that far ahead. I'm pretty sure everything's going to be cleared up by September. If not, we're not spending any of the money. And if we have to cancel because everybody's turning into zombies, I would just send you your money straight back to you. It's like going into an escrow account because I had to go through a bunch of paperwork and I have to do some more to set up a separate corporate bank account just for this money so there's no way it gets intermingled or used just for this particular reason. So if we have to cancel because everybody's falling over from the COVID, then you'll get your money back and you can, I guess, go buy more toilet paper if it's available then. That'll be in September, it's in Southern Ohio. I mean, Southern Iowa, excuse me, not Ohio. 
and uh, we're going to be able to feed you good, put you in a nice place. You're not going to be in a tent. You're not going to be eating sandwiches, you know, three times a day. You're, you're, it, it's going to be a class act. Plus, you're going to have me and Jeff both trying to teach you everything we've ever learned in two days. So it's going to be a fire hose of information. Then lastly, we have funky trap tags and supplies. The trap tags, we kind of tell you that they specialize in trap tags. And they have a full line of trapping stuff. They also have fishing gear. They carry my tactical nuke deer stuff with some, some other different things and hog lure. And, and uh, they, they got tremendous deals on predator calls. Alan, again, is a good friend of mine. If you're looking for a company to deal with, you will not find a more personable guy to deal with than Alan. He, he just loves trappers. So I want to start before we get into this with uh, Johnny. I have an email here that this is, this is kind of, uh, it's not a complicated question, but it's, it's, it's one that uh, I know a lot of people get involved with and they start overthinking things and they start you know, get, get finding all this information online, and it just gets confusing. And just remember, guys, we're trapping. We're not doing brain science. We're not. We're not building rockets to go to the moon. We're not making uh, coronavirus, uh, you know, shots to cure people. We're trapping. So, Clint, I'm relatively new to trapping. I've dabbled in it here and there, but never had time to put it. Never, see, I had time to put to it till now. I'm watching a lot of your videos on YouTube and trying to learn as much as I can. I'm trying to buy equipment and gear to be ready for this fall. I figured it'd be best to buy now instead of for the prices and for being prepared. Now see, I mean, I don't know what other companies are doing but uh, there's a chance that you might be able to get some deals on some stuff before long because um, they're gonna they got bills to pay too and if they got inventory there they may be willing to sell a little cheaper so i would keep your eyes out on, on stuff like that um, on traps do you recommend dogless or dog traps i know you like the cdrs let me stop here guys i like cdrs when i was in texas I liked them in Texas because there was no domestic dogs, there was no domestic cats. I didn't have to worry about uh, any of that down there at all. Never, never once saw a domestic dog. I would never use a CDR in Tennessee, not because it's bad for the animal, but, but because it's just bad for marketing a trappers when someone sees that on their house cat or something. You know, it's... Uh, so I know the some of the videos gave the impression, and I was very impressed with the, of the the least amount of damage that those traps did give. But that's not what I'm using in most of the situations I'm at. But those aren't legal for anything but water sets in Kansas. I'm worried about pan tension on dogless. Center of pan can measure three pounds, but up close to the jaw, it might take six pounds because of leverage. I'm thinking. Am I thinking way out in left field on that? Does it benefit having more surface area to trigger the trap outweigh the pan tension concern? So, first off, do I like dog or dogless? 
they're both great, great designs. Have, have you ever, um, the only time I've ever been in a car wreck, um, I don't really think about it very much because it happened so quick and I was so young. I was, I think I was eight, 17 or 18 and my mom gave me her Dodge Dart. That was my new car. It had a six cylinder in it and it was poopy, poopy brown with spray painted uh, white top in it. All the seats were tore up and from going to church 10,000 times a week. It had suckers and food. It was nasty. But I got wheels. Well, a friend of mine, we found a 440 Magnum at a junkyard and we switched out the six cylinder to a 440 Magnum and uh, the transmission worked, but we didn't know at that time about the other stuff like brakes and tires and suspension and all we had stock little bitty tires on there that came with a six cylinder and anyway i had that car for maybe a total of 45 minutes after we put the motor in it so it ended up going to the junkyard it's a pretty bad wreck but it wasn't it wasn't to the point where something i remember but i've met people that have had bad wrecks and they get very anxious in a car because of what happened to them they know they need to go places. They know they need to be able to get out of the house, but they get very anxious because of that memory sticks in their head. So I'm, I'm doing this story to get around to something else. A lot of the memories I have from traps that have dogs, not that it happened on a daily occurrence or a weekly or even a monthly sometimes, but I'm in a big hot hurry I'm, I'm, I'm really pushing for coyotes and I take a coyote out of a trap and the dog is tore off or the dog is bent or the dog is in some weird position that I'm sitting there with two pairs of pliers trying to straighten this thing back out and that's kind of like the car wreck. That's mentally what sticks in my head with traps that have dogs. Now, and I, I don't have any problem using dogs when it comes to my long springs because for some reason the dogs never seem to be an issue. But with cold springs, I have this memory stuck in my head like a bad car wreck of several times that I'm very frustrated. A lot of times it's raining, it's muddy, you're trying to beat mud out of the trap and you, you get down through that mud ball and the, and the dogs all chewed up or tore off and you're, you're you know, you, you try to carry extra dogs, but uh, you can't find them or whatever. Then you got to pull the trap. You got to put a new trap in. So that's what I remember from using a lot of dog traps. So when the dog list started becoming more popular, when uh, when I started using them more and more was when uh, the the Montana number three came out, which is a scary trap to set the first time you set it because it's either going to set or it's not, and you're all in it when it does it. And then the KB, I started using those, and that was a dogless trap. And the KB, which was, is a higher end, which they don't make anymore, but it's a higher end trap that, I, I mean, I still use them, that's dogless that I never had those car wreck issues, ever. And I don't think I ever had a problem with the Montana number threes. And I know I've never had a problem with the MJ600s. So I don't have the, like the car wreck response to the dogless as I do with the dog, the traps with dogs on. So I personally lean towards dogless. 
I like the Bridger number three dogless, fully modified. I call up to Minnesota, I talk to Jeff. I get them that way. I don't have to worry about it. Now I do have traps that do have dogs and I don't cull them because they have dogs. They're still great traps. That's a personal thing with me that I just remember some bad experiences. Now keep in mind, the more that you trap, the more traps you have out per day, the more train wrecks you're going to come across. And I was running a bunch of them. And I was running them in a lot of different states. And that's just what I remember. But it, it, it's not really a, do you think one is better than the other? It's, it's just, you know, they, they have, you can get replacement dogs now that you could probably run a tank over and not bend them. So that's, that's not an issue um, with a lot of them. Some of them are pretty flimsy. Uh, you can replace them. You can do all kind of stuff. But I don't think it really matters one way or the other if one is better than the other. It's what you're comfortable with. I know a lot of people are not comfortable, trappers are not comfortable with setting a dogless trap. Because you got to have faith in that thing that it's going to hold. Like Kendall's new extreme, extreme traps he's got from No BS. Those are amazing traps and they're dogless. I guarantee you he started playing with the dogless because he was thinking of train wrecks. And he was trying to build the most bulletproof trap that you could. I think a dogless is more bulletproof than one with a dog on it, unless you get one of these higher end, really thick alloy type dogs, which they're not hard to put on. But that that's just me. And, and I'm not saying that one is better than the other. That's just the way that I look at them. Now, as far as the center of the pan, this is, um, I mean, you, you say up here, relatively new to trapping, and, and trust me when I say this, we've all been through this phase. We've all been through this phase where you're trying to get every single advantage and you don't want to make a bad decision when buying equipment. I totally get that. But on a dogless trap, it is going to be different across the pan. There, there's no way to get around that. That's, that's what holds the jaws open. It's going to be tighter in one spot than it is in the other spot. But I'm here to tell you, it really doesn't matter. You're, you're, playing, you know, you're playing the game of like uh, guys with, that are reloaders for rifles do. Well, a 30-06 is better than a 308 because it's 200 feet more per second. And it's got a minute coefficiency difference or this, that, and the other. Or they look at the difference between a 223 and a 556. Five, you know, or uh, some type of uh, pistol ammo. And, and you're, you're looking at these charts and you go, oh, this is a little faster. This has got a little more energy. This, this, so it's got to be better because of this, that, and the other. In reality, anything you shoot with a 308 or a .30-06 is pretty much dead. The 200 feet per second really doesn't make a difference. And as a 60 gunner from combat, I can tell you it goes through blocks, it goes through trees, it goes through houses, it goes through cars, 
and it goes through people like they're butter. So does it really make a difference that one is 200 feet per second more than the other? Not in the real world, but on charts it does. And when, when people are looking at, in the, and they get the little testers out, I've done it. I'm as guilty as anybody. I've done it. Because I went through a phase where I was out in my shop trying to design a pen. I'll to tell you how crazy I've been with this. To design a pen where the dog would actually connect all the way underneath the pen to the far end. So there'd be perfect leverage across it. When it broke, it was the same no matter what. Because when you put it on one side closer than the other, it's different. But when you put it on the other, the, the test ones that I made was pretty amazing. And I showed some people and they basically said, that's a great idea, but you can't manufacture traps. It's too complicated. So I definitely have been there. So I really wouldn't worry about it. Um, if you're trying to catch gray fox, six pounds could be an issue. If you're trying to catch coyotes and cats, six pounds in one part is not going to be an issue. And you also have to think, with a trap that has a dog on it, all that section where that dog is and to where that connects, the trap can't fire anyway. Let me say that again. Where the dog, where the dog meets the pan, back to the dog, that's a complete dead area. So you could say I've got three pounds on one side and 99 pounds on the other. So this, this, you know, some of this stuff, it just really doesn't matter. You know, um, Tom, I get where you're coming from, but it, it, trust me, what you're going to have to come down to is do you ever want to play with dogs in the field or do you not want to play with dogs? You know, fixing them. I think that's what it boils down to. Does benefit of having more surface area to trigger the trap outweigh the pan tension concern? I'm assuming you're talking about bigger pans because most dogless traps have bigger pans because they, they don't have that section in there where the dog comes over and all that's dead. It may be a little bit more, but it's, it's better than any dog trap's going to be because you can't fire the trap that way. So, I think it is. I mean, I'm, I'm a component of big pans. So, if you think uh, a dogless pan is big, go to expandapan.com and look at his. That's what I like. I want the whole freaking jaw to be a pan. If I could figure out how to make a, a pan that was bigger than the trap, but they would get their feet in there when it came up, I'd be all over it. The bigger the pan, the less misses you're going to have. And I know from somebody that's just starting out, you're automatically going to think you're going to have toe catches and this, that, and the other. Don't worry about that. Again, that's like chart stuff. That's like uh, people sitting around, uh, you know, hypothesizing about what's going to happen. Because when you use bigger pans, you find out that you actually get less toe catches than you do with smaller pans. As crazy as that sounds. I know the armchair experts are not going to like to hear that, but it's just the truth. I get less toe catches now than I did when I used to use stock pans 
that were much smaller with dogs on them. So to me, the surface area is more important. Like a number three Bridger's got a pretty big pan on it to begin with. I want to fill that thing up as best as I can because there's nothing more frustrating than going up and seeing <coughs> that the uh, animal has stepped inside your jaws and did not hit the pan and didn't fire it off and then get caught. That's crazy frustrating. Everybody with standard pans, they see that all the time. I know, I've been there. But that's not exactly, uh, that's not what you see with bigger pans. You see an animal. So yes, to me, surface area trumps if there's a little bit of variance in the pan somewhere. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. The bigger that pan gets, the more variance that's going to be. But I think you're going to like the results. So I want to talk about Johnny. Like I said, I don't know what made me think of him today. But uh, I don't know. It could have been a smell. It could have been a word. It could have been. I don't know what it was. But um, just he's just on my mind. So I thought I'd talk about him. I'm talking about Johnny Thorpe from New York. Um, probably one of the most well-known trappers. Uh, maybe not so much in the last 10 years. But before that, I mean, you know, you had him and Russ Carmen and Craig O'Gorman and... Uh, the guy that's now elk hunting out in New Mexico. Oh, I can't think of his name right now. But you had like four or five of the, you know, really what the big boys were. You had Blackie and guys like that. And Johnny started, I mean, I mean, right after the Depression, I believe. He knew E.J. Daly. He would go and visit him at his muskrat tra uh, camps when they used to go in with backpacks and build tents and stay in the in the frozen wilderness for a month at a time. And, you know, they're living off flour and sugar and what they catch and uh, some, some lard and different things like that. I mean, these dudes were hardcore. We would not do that today. We're too mechanized. So he came up in the era, era way before there was a fur boom. He used to make a living in New York doing bounty on foxes, coyotes, and brush wolves. And he's a very observant person. And they actually outlawed the 330 in New York because of Johnny on dry land. Because he found a way to paint the body grip, put it in trails, and decimate brush wolves. And his numbers got so big that the, basically the people in charge decided to make that quote illegal all of a sudden. But he was catching fox year-round. He was catching couch year-round. He was doing all this type of stuff. He was what we would consider a true outdoorsman. Not kind of like what we consider outdoorsmen today. I mean, he lived in the woods pretty much. And... Um, that's just the way, and there's a bunch of guys like him back then. I mean, majority of outdoorsmen were like that. They'd get in a canoe, and they would go out with their camping stuff, and they would just go trap. They weren't coming back at night. They weren't worried about their vehicle. Uh, if something bad happened to them, they were just going to die out there. I mean, that's the way that it was. And that's the type 
boy Johnny kind of brought up. And I've got some notes here, things that just stuck out in my head from being with Johnny. He knew people. He understood trappers that didn't quite meet the level of guys like him. So he, he figured out a way to use their exuberance against them, and they didn't even know it. So what Johnny did is he made a set very famous, which everybody that mink traps, now when they find a bridge with a couple inches of water, they go and set the trap up next to the bridge. And you, 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 catch, you catch mink, you catch rats, you catch coon, and sometimes you catch fox and cats. And he wrote about it. Well, all of a sudden, everybody started using this set. Every time he'd go to a bridge, there'd be somebody there. So he, he realized, instead of competing with everybody, he would find a different way. So what he would do is, depending on the time of the year, he'd go upstream or downstream of the bridge. And he would build cubbies and he would catch the mink a lot of times on dry ground so he didn't have to worry about water fluctuation. But he would build these cubbies and stuff way ahead of time where the mink were used to them. And while all the trappers that read his articles were fighting over the bridge, he'd be 50, 60 feet downstream or upstream and he would cut everybody off. Then people caught on to what he was doing then. So what did Johnny do? Instead of getting an argument over something that he built five years ago that now has got a trap in it the first day of opening season, he left those open and built more of them for trappers that didn't quite understand what was going on. See, they were set-minded, not animal-minded. So he would build cubbies and tunnels and, and places, and he would, you know, make places very obvious for trappers because he knew that's where they would go. Then he would go upstream or downstream from them and cut them off. And he got very proficient at that because when I was up with him, he showed me all of these beautiful mink sets that he never sets. He said, I don't set that. I made that for trappers. Because when I make it for trappers, I know they're going to see it and they're going to have to put a trap in there and they think that it's, it's dead on and it is except the mink that's coming down this creek is not going to make it that far, and they don't know that. So he knew people. Today, we want to be in, you know, scream and shout and get in arguments and all that type of stuff. Learn from Johnny on that. Learn people. And learn how to react instead of making a bad situation worse, how to make it in your favor. It's pretty cool when you think about it. Now, one of the sets he made, and he, the one thing you got to know about Johnny is he set fast, he set crude, and he went lightweight. Now, today, I use an auger. We use trucks, four-wheelers, boats, canoes, uh, Polarises. You know, most time when we go out in the morning, we got what? 400 pounds of stuff in the back of the truck. Everything Johnny needed to make a, a efficient coyote and fox set was in his coat pockets. <laughs> let, let that sink in. 
He had his traps and everything he needed inside of a hunting coat. So he would get, so no one ever saw him with trapping gear when he got off the side of the road. And he, he trapped a lot of the, the, you know, public and state grounds. So one of his things that he would do is he had this little bitty antique drill, which I'm sure when he was young wasn't antique, it was just a drill. And he would find trees on location and he would drill a hole and it would make a hole in there about three-eighths size. And he would put it in there about two inches. Then he would put that back in his pocket. Then he would pull a trap out of his pocket that had two or three feet of chain on it. And then off his belt, he would pull a hammer. And in his other coat pocket, he'd have fence staples. Which if you don't know what those are, they're just U. There's like nails with two pointy ends and they're built like a U. You can still buy them down at Tractor Supply or any hardware store. It's what you put bob wire to fences on. And he would nail the end of the chain to the trunk of the tree. Now, could you imagine trying to find his sets? Even if you saw him get out of the road, it would be near impossible. Because you would have to find a 3 8 inch hole in the side of a tree. And he would cover up the chain with leaves. And he would use a lot of times just leaves covering his trap. Later he got to where he's using a lot of buckwheat holes. But at the beginning it was just whatever was on site. And that man made a living trapping. See, if I were to do a demo with that today, people would fall out of the, the chairs asleep because it's not sexy. But I tell you what it is, it's deadly. When everybody else kept getting more complicated, Johnny would just kind of laugh about it and go do his thing. That's one of the things I admired about Johnny Thorpe. He just stayed in his groove. Because I'm sure he's been down the, i got to have everything in all these buckets and backpacks and cars and, and all this type stuff. And as you get older and trapping, you do simplify. He figured that out early. A little drill, because I asked him one time, why don't you use a cordless drill, man? And he goes, this one works just fine. And it's what I've been using forever. Now, if I was going to duplicate Johnny said today, I would use a cordless drill. But that would be all that I would change. You know, you can do the same set that he did with a cordless drill without using fence staples with an extension on the end of the chain to a tree, that tree or another tree. It still works. I've used that on telephone poles, which probably is illegal. And I'll and I'll uh, and I'll say that I'm lying about this if if it is. I've used it on fence posts. I've used it on. Uh, I found uh, one time a bunch of uh, cut timber that's been left in the woods, and I could kind of guesstimate how the animals are going to go up to it. And I used that on the fallen timber where the saws cut them. You can use that set near about anywhere, except out in the middle of an open field. And where Johnny trapped, there wasn't a whole lot of open fields. It was woods. 
and a lot of I get a lot of calls from people because they see DVDs and they everything's in the fields with dirt holes and they're trying to catch stuff in the woods. Do what Johnny did. See another thing Johnny did that was I thought was absolutely genius and cheap was he knew that his sets were low visibility because it was just a three agents hole in a tree. So what did Johnny do? He wanted to have a cheap and effective call scent. So what he would do is he would collect minnows. I never, never he never told me how he collected his minnows. I have a feeling he probably went around to uh, all of the bait shops and all their frozen minnows that died. They just stuck them in a the freezer for him and he came home. But what he did with them is he would stick a bunch of minnows in a beer can because he's drinking beer through the top and then he would put some water in there and then he would freeze them and before he would go use them he would knock some holes in that at the bottom and on the sides and he would run a piece of trapping wire through the side of one hang it in a tree where the wind would blow across his little hole set and it would put off a call scent for weeks because those minnows had to thaw they had to rot they had to drip out and there was nothing there for an animal to really get to because he'd put them about head height and he sometimes would put them 15 20 feet away from his set but he knew the way the winds were going to come so that smell would blow across so when an animal would start tracking those fish he'd come across his set first Pretty genius when you think about it. Another set that he used, which a lot of old timers did, which I'm sure there's people that still use it, but I really don't know of any, spring hole sets. Where we live in the mountains, spring holes are pretty common. It's just where water comes out of the ground. It's the last thing to freeze because there's always moving water. It's warmer because it's coming out of the ground. And it can be zero degrees outside, but you still have open water. Him and a lot of the old timers, when they first started catching fox and fisher and mink, this was the way that they used to catch them. And, you know, up till a few years when Johnny passed, he still relied on his spring sets. It was really cool to watch because it was like watching something from the 40s. And basically what it is, is you have these spring hole sets. And most of them will have a game trail running one way or the other around them. And he'll pick a place that's kind of flat somewhere in there or off a point, one of the two. And then he would go and he would get some rocks and he would build that up. Because some of these spring hole sets could be, you know, five, five six inches deep to a foot deep. They're not really deep things most of the time. And he would put some rocks down. And then when it became trapping season, he would cut some uh, sod and flip it upside down. Or he would cut some moss and flip it upside down. And he would set his set trap on top of that moss. It would bed on top of the rock in the sod or in the grass. And he would place this about six, seven inches away from the bank. So above the water level, is his trap 
and he's got moss that's cut to his jaw side in the middle. So to an animal, what a perfect place to step. Out in front of that, he would place more rocks and he would put his bait and lure out on those rocks. And he caught fisher after fisher and fox after fox in his spring hole sets. He could have went modern. I mean, sure, he, he used dirt holes sometimes, but that was at a last resort. I can tell you from knowing Johnny. If he had spring hole sets, that's what he used. He had full confidence in them because he's caught thousands of animals on there. Another thing Johnny used to do is a lot of these spring hole sets, the people that lived there over the century would con continuously clean them out because it was their source of water. And him being in the mountains, there'd be a rock pile there. Some of them just two or three feet, some of them eight, 10 feet and 10 feet round of rocks. Johnny knew where every one of them was. And he would in the summer, fall, spring, winter, didn't make any difference. When he found a roadkill, he'd throw it in a bucket and he would go shove it in those rocks. He trained those animals to go to those spring hole sets because he, they knew for some reason the Santa Claus of fur bearers was leaving treats all the time. And when he was trapping, he wouldn't put the treats out. But he'd have the treat right past his set above the water, in the water. Now think about it. If it's cold, which in New York, you know, upstate where he was at, it's cold. Animals don't want to get wet unless they have to, including raccoons. And there's this perfect stepping thing to get to the bait. Whoever came up with that, absolute genius. But do we use that anymore? No. We're too sophisticated. Now, I can tell you that it works on ponds because I've used it quite a bit. What it doesn't work on is fluctuating water. See, the spring hole sets were pretty stable. It was a constant amount of water coming out and it would overflow however it was going to overflow and it stayed really level. Ponds, unless you get a bunch of rain, are pretty level. Rivers, not so much. So you can use this same concept, spring hole set, on a pond. Do I ever see anybody doing it or talking about it? No. Think of the wasted opportunity there. Johnny had it figured out. Now one thing about Johnny that made him such a good trapper was he was an explorer by nature. He was also a treasure hunter. Johnny would be just as happy walking around the woods like a chicken with his head cut off just to see what was there. He would find old homesteads, he would find caves, he would find rock ledges, he would find swamps he didn't know about. He wandered all the time, even when he was up in his 70s. He just didn't want to sit at home. He would go out and explore. And the more exploring he found, the more animals that he found, the more spring holes he found, the more caves he found, the more rock ledges for the cats he found. All of this, over the years, he could just go down the road. It was amazing. For one, that territory doesn't look like it is around here. But he would just point out spring hole set over there about 50 foot in the water, 
you know, there's a good swamp. If you go another 150 foot, the mink will come up through this creek over here because he's tracked these mink. He's tracked the fisher. He knows where the fisher crossed the road in the snow. He tries to put all these puzzle pieces together. But he does it all year round, or did it all year round. Because he explored. How much exploring does a modern trapper do today? You go down the road at 65 miles an hour, you see a crossroads, you slam on the brakes, you slam in a dirt hole, you slam the door, and you hit the gas as fast as you can go, and you go down the road. What's around you that could be to your advantage, you don't know. I catch myself doing this all the time. I used to trap with a gentleman by the name of Ed Blue. He was an explorer too, and it used to drive me crazy when I was younger. He always had to know what was on the other side of the hill or the knoll. What was down in the drainage? What was across that tree line? So I'm trying to like put traps in as fast as I can to catch as much fur as I can because that's how I was making my house payment. And, and, and it got so bad that I would just start calling it Lewis and Clarkin, you know, the great explorers of, of early America. He couldn't help it. But I'll be danged if he didn't find some amazing trapping places that I would have never seen and never got to set a trap on, never found, for the simple reason that that's just not, I'm more that way now, but I wasn't that way then because I was go, 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 go. And I tell you what that went is I went by, went by, went by a lot of opportunity. He was an explorer. That's something to think about with your own self when it comes to trapping. And let me tell you, if you got kids, kids love to explore. Like I said, he was an observant of people and animals. When he was in his lure business phase, you could watch him watching people. The way he marketed, very observant of people. And when it came to the animals, it wasn't like he would see a mink track and go, there's a mink here. No, 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 no. Where did the mink go come from? Where was the mink going? What time of year was it? Was it a young one? Was it a female? Was it a male? Was it, you know, is it is it uh, right after the dens break up? All this. See, Johnny had like time schedules. You set upstream of people, certain time of year, downstream, other time of year. Same with otter. He knew where people were going to be setting, but he knew the animals better. He learned to think like an animal because he slowed down because of he wanted to know. And, and I'm talking about he, he would try to play the scenarios out in his head. It was, it was very interesting to talk to him about this because we would go out and we'd find mink or fisher and you'd see him turning his head this way and that way, and he'd be thinking of everything that's around there and trying to figure out why he's going to do it. It was, it was fascinating to watch. What do we do today as modern trappers? Slam in a trap and run down the road. He was also someone 
that was very observant with information. He was telling me a story. Uh, he, 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 got, he got a thing where he was selling uh, lure for one ounce, for, I think it was 12 or $14. And at that time, one ounce lures were 450 Craig O'Gorman was the most expensive at, say, six. This was many moons ago. But Johnny wanted to make lure without worrying about the price of the average price of lures. And he wanted to prove a point that if lure makers weren't restricted by $4 an ounce, because you got to think you got 30, 40 cents in the bottle and you got a label and you got labor. So really what you're buying is probably about $2 worth of product. If that was not having to be regulated by the market, what would happen if you could really pump up lures with strong ingredients where you had the margin there and the price there to allow the lure maker to make what he really wanted to make, but it was crazy price. And Johnny made up, I think it was five lures. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was 12 or 14 because it was a shock when it came out, everybody was like, well, he's never gonna sell that. That's too expensive, this, that, and the other. He thought the same thing. But he was just going to use these himself. He thought he may sell a few bottles, just out of curiosity. But once people started using that lure, he had to do what he didn't want to do was go back into manufacturing large volumes of lure because once people were using this, they could tell a difference and they didn't care that it was $12. Because $12 ounce of lure, when fur prices are good, can make you a ton of money. Because you do get what you pay for. And he gave you more than you were used to giving. But one of those lures, I would smell it, and it was for mink, and I was so confused of what I was selling, because I was in the lure business at this time. So I noticed that one of them started separating, and I left it alone, didn't, didn't move it or anything, and I waited till the oil separated from the base, and it took about eight months. And I gently poured off some of that oil into a clean bottle. And when I smelled what I smelled, I could not believe what was in a mink lure. And I remember asking Johnny about that. And I told him, I said, this is what happened. I was curious. I'm not going to make it. I have no intentions and I never have and I never will. But I said, when I separated that all out, I was so confused about what I was smelling. Johnny laughed at me. I'm talking, he horse laughed at me. He goes, I got a story for you, Clint. I was at a mink farm and I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but he had something in his hand that he was eating. And he started walking up to a friend of his that had this mink farm. And the mink started getting really rowdy when he walked in, which can happen sometimes depending on where they're at in their life cycle apparently with sex and testosterone and all that good stuff. The guy that owned the mink farm ran over to him and pushed him back out the door. Said, you can't bring that in here. He said, what? 
He said, you cannot bring that in here. Have you never seen that the way Mink respond to that? And he goes, you're kidding me. So he talked to the guy a while and he said, and he worked out a deal, let him go in there with it a little bit. And then he had some mink that he was testing this out on. And sure enough, the mink went ballistic. And it's the last thing that I would ever think would get a mink riled up. See, he was observant enough with that information that he made a tremendous mink lure off something that would make no sense whatsoever. And I mean no sense whatsoever. But people that, that, are, that grow up around mink, it's probably pretty common knowledge that, that you would do that. Now, one thing about Johnny that I do remember is he never made a set that he didn't think was going to catch. He had tremendous confidence. For one, he was put in a set where he knew it should go in a construction that was the right presentation. And he knew he had good lure and he was going to catch. His confidence level almost bordered arrogance from somebody that doesn't understand the way a professional thinks. Because let's face it, how many traps do you set out a year that are just a hope and a prayer? Johnny didn't set out hope and prayers. He set out sure things. A lot of that is people don't have confidence in a flat set if they're used to dirt holes. They don't have confidence in a lure if they've never used it. And I can understand that. They don't have confidence in the weather. They, they, all these things are going through your head and you're there and you had not put a trap out in a while, so you put a trap out. Johnny had confidence in what he was doing. And he also had confidence in his trapping business. And a lot of Johnny's success was his confidence in his products and in his methods. See, there's a whole lot of people today that have methods and products that they really don't know that much about trapping. And when they try to act confident, it comes off wrong because it's, it's false confidence. And, and another human being can pick up on that like a woman can if you get skunk on you when you come in the house. But Johnny knew what he had was good. He knew what he did worked. And he knew he could do it all over the country. And he had this confidence from it. Now confidence comes from time. Confidence comes from experience. And confidence comes from being able to do something repeatedly. And that, that showed to other trappers that were looking to buy his methods or buy his products. And they went neck deep in it. So if you're, if you're looking to get in business, you need to use your own product, be confident with your own product, and have the experience behind that product to be able to have a true self-sense of confidence when it comes to it. If you're just hoping and guessing, dude, people smell that stink a mile away. So yeah, that's something else we can learn. One of the last things I'm going to talk about 
is Johnny was a networker. He talked to trappers. He talked to perfume makers. He talked to people with mink farms. He talked to people that raised fox. He raised foxes self. He would talk to any trapper and you could watch him dissecting what someone was saying because he could sift out the bull crap and sometimes there'd be a nugget there. Now see, that's amazing today because most people that are quote experts think they know it all and when they're talking to somebody else that they don't think is at their level, they pretty much are just waiting for them to shut up so they can tell them something. That wasn't the way Johnny was. Johnny would listen. See, I've learned that. I've actually had a dealer come up to me, uh, it was two years ago, and out of the blue, he goes, you know, I've been watching you, and you're very different from a lot of the other dealers around here. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, when people are talking to you, you actually look them in the eye. Watch all these other dealers. They're looking over their shoulder. They're looking for the next customer. They're looking for whatever. But you know what they're not doing? It's paying attention to the customer. Well, see, that's a lesson that I learned from Johnny. Because I was not at the, the skill level of Johnny when I met him. But there were some things apparently that I said from my personal experience that caught his attention. And if you're going to be in a business and you think you know it all, you're shortchanging yourself because you don't know it all. And you may learn something from trapping from a mechanic. You may learn from somebody that's a welder. You may learn something from a first year trapper that will blow you away if you'll take the time to listen. See, Johnny networked with people and trappers. And he was always on the lookout how something's going to work better. And that's not the way most people are today. He had a massive network all across the country. If he had an issue or whatever, he could pick up the phone, he could drive, he could do whatever, he could meet people. See, that, that's something that I think trappers need to work on. That's something that we have fell short on because everything seems to be at our fingertips. Well, I'll tell you what's at your fingertips, guys. It's the average. That's what's at your fingertips, the average. If you want to get above the average, you got to be able to sift through a ton of data. And the only way to get that data is talk to trappers, other trappers. Don't try to dominate them. Don't try to impress them. Don't try to do all this other ego stuff. Just listen. There's a product in Enrager that if uh, you knew what it was, you would never use it again. But anybody that's ever used my Enrager Beaver Lure, you buy more Beaver Lure because it works and it works damn well. But I was listening to an old gentleman years ago, probably 25 years ago, ask me if I've ever used this with Castor. And it was so strange 
and went so counterdictive to anything a trapper would do with a lure, I dismissed it. But in the back of my mind, that ate on me for about three months. So I went to Wally World and I picked some of this up. I mixed it with Castor and lo and behold, that's why it has the name Enrager. It has nothing to do with animals. It has nothing to do with wildlife. It has nothing to do with beaver. It has nothing to do with food. It's a product that makes no sense whatsoever. But to beaver, oh, they like it. See, I would have missed out on how many thousands of bottles of Enrager that I've sold. If I wouldn't listen to an old man that didn't look like he's done a whole lot. But for some reason, I don't know if he fell into the water with this stuff on him and a beaver bit him. I don't know what happened. But he thought outside the box and he was willing to share that with me. And I've sold literally thousands and thousands of bottles of Enrager off of something that makes no sense. Listen to people. Even the most rank aperture that's halfway observant can teach you something. Building a network of people and other trappers, you, you will use that for the rest of your life. Because the way that works is you help them and they help you. It's not a one way. It's not like one of these uh, techniques that you're going to get off some rah-rah seminar on how to be a millionaire in 24 hours. It's not one of those. It's how people use networks to become better. I bounce stuff off of Chip, Carl, Tim, Jeff, Randy, because they all have kind of their things they're at but at the same time when they want to bounce something off me they got a hundred percent of my attention because that's what networking means all of this I learned from a gentleman that to be honestly drank too much partied way too much probably didn't manage his money very well struggled with a lot of things in life but he was a master at the game of trapping. Was he perfect? No. But he taught me a lot. And hopefully some of these things that I went over tonight helps you. If you put them to use. Because just hearing all this stuff that I talk about all the time, if you don't put it to use, you might as well be listening to music. So hopefully Johnny can help you through me as much as he helped me through him. And I will talk to y'all next week, guys. Stay safe. You know, start carrying a pull stick around with you. If somebody wants to get closer than that, you just jab them in the chest. Keep them away from you until all this crap goes away. Spend some time with your family if you're in lockdown. Like I said, 
what a better place to do than go catch you a bunch of crappie and catfish right now because I doubt you're going to be breaking any social distance rules if you're out on the water or you're turkey hunting. Y'all have a good week and I'll talk to y'all later.